Hi, how's everybody doing? Yeah, a little fuller in here in the 1115. Some of those people that transitioned in here, some of your new friends from the nine. I love it. We were in the nine and it was so funny. There was like gaps, you know, little chairs and they're not used to having like, there's literally every seat at nine is usually full. And then we have the plastic chairs with, uh, you know, 20, 25 or so people in them. Uh, and this morning there was a, there was a, there was gaps and there were people looking around like, oh, where did all the people go? And I'm like, they're coming to 1115. That's what they're doing. So welcome. We're glad to have you. Um, man, I tell you what, I have loved this uh, series, being in the playlist series. We've got a few more uh, weeks of that. It's amazing that we're this far into the summer. I know that if we've got any students in here, they're immediately going to be angry at me, but I'm like, summer's almost over. Um, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's fun to say that as a parent. Man, summer's almost over. And they're like, what? No. Um, but this series, this, you know, this uh, Psalm series has been, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, and one of the things I love about uh, just even the title, playlist, um, songs, I mean, Psalms from the heart, uh, is that it kind of gets us wrapped around the idea that um, the pl- a playlist is a, is a tone setting thing. I don't know if any, anybody, anybody like a playlist, like your, your jam is you, you like to make playlists. Anybody? Nobody? A couple of people? Yeah, you like playlists. Or do you let Spotify make it for you or, you know, Apple Music, whichever one you're on? Um, I, I mean, I remember the days of, you know, making the mixtape. We've talked about that, but like road trip playlists, like those are tone setters. When my kids were young, we would, you know, the primary influences of the road trip playlists uh, were mom and dad um, because we wanted to torture our children for eight hours uh, with songs that they didn't like. No, we would always have these moments that would set the tone for the trip. And, you'd, you know, you kind of plan it like, okay, here's going to be the sing-along that they will want to kill us because it'll just be me and you, babe. You know, a little Sonny and Cher. We're going to really rock the house, do our thing, do a little TikTok video. Kidding. Never done one in my life. Um, and then you've got the ones that the kids can't help it. You know, they're going to start singing whether they like it or not, just because it's, you know, kind of gets you going. Um, well, my wife, uh, she is one of, like, she's one of those people that, like, appreciates sadness. Uh, and she's, uh, I don't know if that's, you're not laughing. You're like, well, that's scary. Um, <laughs> But no, what I mean is I'm, not, I'm one of those people that's like, I avoid sadness at all costs. My wife embraces it a little bit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like at the end of, like we would take these vacations every, every year uh, to uh, Blowing Rock, North Carolina. For 10 years, we stayed in the same place. Uh, a friend of ours would let us borrow their place in North Carolina. And it was an amazing, amazing, like just like fairy tale type type place. And my kids, you know, they got used to it. It's like they called it their mountain house. And I'm like, this is not your mountain house. It's somebody else's. They're very generous. But we would leave and my wife always wanted to set the tone on the way back. Like, hey, there's, there's something, do you, have you ever heard of good sadness? Like that, my wife made me aware of this. I didn't even know there was a good sadness, but like that feeling of like nostalgia, like anybody get the empties when vacation's almost over? Like, oh, it's the last, some of you that are, you know, you know, more of the melancholy people, you're, you're three days into the vacation, you're already getting sad. You're like, yeah, it's over. Um, I know some of you. Uh, that's my wife. And then we, we, we're on our way out and there's this long winding driveway because it's set in the Blue Ridge Mountains that you have to get out to go. And she's like, we are going to play a song. We're going to set the tone for sadness, but good sadness. And she would play this the song from the, the Truman Show. Anybody ever seen the Truman Show? It's great. Um, and the, the soundtrack, there's this one song. It's like this, it's like, it's not sad, but it's like, it's good, sad. Like you just want to, and it sets the tone. 
And that's what I love about these road trip playlists is that it's, you're doing it. It's not just for you. It's we're trying to bring the whole car together. We're going we're gonna to get us all into this zone together. And it's setting the tone. And what I love about the Psalms is that God has placed them right in the center of Scripture. And that it's there to set the tone for your life. They're words from God, but they're also empathetic words where we realize that God understands who we are. He uses the, the, the words of David. He uses the words of the psalmist to let us know that we're, that we're not alone. To let us know that it's, 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 it's normal to look up to God and go, what is going on right now? I don't understand. I, I thought you would always be with me. I flood my bed with tears all day long. I mean, you hear these in the Psalms, but then you hear the psalmist remember how faithful God is and remember how sovereign he is and, and stating things like, you set the sun, the moon, the stars in place. Everything that I see, you've created them. Who is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You know the, the hairs on my head. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Praise be to God. Glory to you forever. We know that you are God and your love endures forever. Your faithfulness doesn't end. These are tone-setting statements. These are songs that are meant to retune our heart away from the gravity of this world because the gravity of this world wants to set the tone for our lives, doesn't it? Like we, the world and the, the enemy that wants to destroy you wants you to believe that what's down here will rescue you, save you. This is what is going to set the tone for your life. This is what you need to follow. And the Psalms, right in the center of Scripture, lead us away from that to trust something bigger, to trust something greater than ourselves. So what, what I love about these, and what I, we did this a couple of weeks ago, is that even in these moments we're together here in church, we can set the tone, like we can unify our hearts in one accord. We just did as we sang in worship. And what I want to do is what we did a couple of weeks ago. Instead of doing a reading today, we're going to be the reading. We're going to do the reading together. So let's all stand up together. Love it. And we're going to read Psalm 100. It is very, uh, for, if you've been in church for a long time, this is a, a familiar one. Uh, and a lot of, lot of worship songs and hymns have been written uh, based in Psalm 100. But let's read together. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. You may be seated. I love that. Even just hearing our voices together speak these words over each other. Sometimes that's what we, we need to hear. And I love that you've got people that God used by the power of the Holy Spirit to present songs to the people of God. And that so many years later in 2023 that we're reciting them together, that we're singing these songs together in church. Um, and just like we've done in weeks past, we've had tracks that have kind of been laced throughout uh, you know, the morning uh, in our playlist series. So what tracks we've had uh, in each psalm. Sometimes there's several in one week and sometimes we just have an overarching theme track. Like a couple weeks ago, we had Don't Panic by Coldplay. Well, this week uh, we are going to look at a track by John Mayer, you know? Yes, there's a little one person in the world that likes John Mayer. 
Make it two, because I like him as well. The heart of life. I'm kidding. I know that some of you do. You're just, you know, a little bit reserved this morning. It's okay. We're not going to stay there. We're not going to let you. All right. The heart of life. The lyrics are, they go like this. And I know somebody's going to be really wanting to sing it. Um, I hate to see you cry lying there in that position. There's things you need to hear. So turn off your tears and listen. I just want to stop right there at that at that section. It's he's setting it up, you know. I love this as a songwriter. He's this this I looked up songs of gratefulness and there was like, you know, the don't worry be happies and you know the 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 songs of like, you know, you know, you should be happy in the moment, those type of things. Um but I kept looking at the, in, in these, these top, they would rank all these ones, and this one always ended up at the top. But what I loved about this one is that it, it had some real and rawness to it. Like, there's somebody crying in this. Like, this is a gratefulness deal, but it's about somebody that's obviously sad. They're, they're, they're you know, maybe they're laying in the fetal position. And there's somebody that's saying, hey, there's things that you need to hear, so turn off your tears and listen. And look, and it stays in reality. Pain throws your heart to the ground. Love turns the whole thing around. No, it won't all go the way it should. I mean, that's reality. It's a psalmist, right? This is a psalm. It's not always gonna go the way that it should. But then there's a but. But I know the heart of life is good. And as you read it, the only thing that really is missing that's missing for us is what is the heart of life? Or better question, who is the heart of life? And when we look at Psalm 100, that is what we find. We find not that we should be grateful because of what God has given us, but more that we should be grateful just because of who God is, for his nature, for his attributes. It's what sets a handful of Psalms apart, that they speak of the attributes of God, and that should make us excited. That should make us shout for joy. What's interesting about this Psalm in particular is it has two elements to it. There's lots of different Psalms of Thanksgiving, but this one combines an attribute of God that isn't necessarily always associated with the idea of being grateful. It has God's sovereignty right in the center of it. In verse three, Know that the Lord is God, or in the ESV, um, know that the Lord, that he is God is the way that it says it. Almost a, a more kind of stake in the ground statement of his sovereignty. It is he who made us, we don't make ourselves, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are not our own. We are not independent. We are dependent. We are not sufficient on our own. We are insufficient, but he is God and he is sufficient. It's about his sovereignty that we should be grateful for his sovereignty, which I think is very interesting because you don't not often see those things together. In fact, people often, sovereignty is a, a troubling thing. I've had conversations with people that have been at this church for many, many years, and it's the area where, you know, we, we don't necessarily always agree, like that God is completely sovereign. And when I say the word sovereign, I mean, he is before all things. He is in all things. He is through all things right? As the apostle Paul would say, like he is, he's the one that holds all things together. When we talk about Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, over heaven, over earth. He was the active force in creation, but he also, what? He predestines, he foreknows, which is an uncomfortable thing, right? The fact that God is sovereign, that he's in all things, that we don't choose what? Salvation. 
that God chooses us. That's an, that is one of those things that God's, God's the pursuer. He's the hound of heaven. He's the one that's relentless in coming after the rebels. It is not us that finds God, but God finds us. When we're lost, he is the one that finds us, comes after us, chases us down in a relentless way, which is a beautiful thing, but sovereignty is difficult. And often is it the thing, especially if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and wondering, why am I, if God is sovereign, if he is good, then why cancer? If he is good, then why did this happen in my past? Why did I, 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 I was a child and I grew up in this house and these are the things that I experienced. If God is sovereign, if he is in control of all things, then why did these things happen to me? Not only that, sovereignty flies in the face of many things that we believe are the way our culture should work. Maybe not, maybe not everybody in this room, not everybody in here, but that we should be independent, that we should be in control of our own identity. The Psalm says we are not our own. It says, it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. If you look in the Hebrew Septuagint, it says, it goes on a little bit further than that when it says we are his. It says, and we are not ourselves. In other words, we don't make ourselves in any way. We don't create our identity. Trevin Wax, a writer for the Gospel Coalition, he says that most people believe that the offensive things that we find in Scripture, like when you're maybe talking to your friends about Jesus, or maybe even you've walked in here and you're, you're wondering, okay, is Jesus really the only way? Like the exclusivity of Jesus is the only way. There is no way to come to the Father but through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. People say, okay, that's the most offensive verse in the Bible. People might go into Romans or go to the laws in Leviticus to say, oh, you know, you've got all these verses that dictate our identity. They dictate what sexuality looks like. They, they dictate what marriage looks like between a man and a woman. They dictate all these things. Those are the offensive pieces in the Bible. But Trevin Wax says, you know, possibly Psalm 100 verse, verse three is the most offensive, that he is God and that we don't make ourselves. He says, because it flies in the face culturally of everything that, that the current culture is for, which is we want to be independent. We want to make ourselves. We want to create ourselves. We want to define ourselves. We want to create our own worth and value through success, through what we look like. We want to define who we are to the world. And we don't want anybody else to have influence on that. We, we want to be independent operators as opposed to people that are a part of a collective under an overarching authority. Nobody likes authority. So he says, this, this passage is absolutely offensive to many ears for, for reasons that maybe we haven't even considered. Now, let's get back to gratefulness. So here's the psalmist saying, you should be grateful for that sovereignty. So for me, I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of tension here. I wanna know why. Why should I be grateful for the sovereignty of God if it makes me that uncomfortable? This idea of God doing the things that he wants to do, that I have, I can, I can even, like what, what, what part of my life matters? And if, if God is in control, why the chaos that we see in the rest of life and on planet earth? So I wanna answer a few questions this morning. Actually, three to be exact. One is, what is gratitude? 
Two is what impedes gratitude. Like what gets in the way of us being grateful? And then lastly, the question that I really want to see answered is how does God's sovereignty lead us to be grateful? First, what is gratitude? Get our heart wrapped around gratitude. I think we kind of have a general sense of what gratitude is, like being grateful. Um, but there's, there's a little bit of a depth to gratitude as an emotion. Harvard Health Publishing says this about gratitude, because that's where we get all good information from Harvard, of course. Gratitude is a thankful appreciation for what an individual receives. We get that, whether tangible or intangible. With gratitude, people acknowledge the goodness in their lives. In the process, people usually recognize, and listen to this, they usually recognize the source of that goodness lies at least partially outside themselves. Now, that's a distinction that um, in every definition of gratitude holds true. Like, we can be grateful in our, in our own mind for situations that we created for ourselves, but that's really not true gratitude. Gratitude comes as we are recipients of what? The root of gratitude. We're as recipients of grace. We're recipients, it's this unmerited favor. We've received something that we didn't necessarily deserve and we're grateful. We're not indebted, because that's different. When you feel indebted, that is, that is almost feeling guilty. Like, oh, I was given something and I, I shouldn't have been. I feel like I need to pay them back. I feel like I need to give something back. It's like coming into worship and feeling like you have to raise your hands because God needs it. No, there's a, it's gratitude is a, is a different thing altogether. It, it lies outside of you. And as a result, gratitude also helps people connect with something larger than themselves. I'm glad Harvard recognizes that. Whether to other people, nature, or a higher power. So it's an acknowledgement right there. Even in our, our, our educational system, collegiate educational system, that gratitude leans towards something other than us. In fact, it can lean all the way up to a higher power, something other than us that's given us something. Just a couple of other things about gratitude. Gratitude is, is a, an emotion. In social psychology education, gratitude's considered an, like an, an emotional state or an emotional movement in the brain. It's actually really good for you to be grateful for your health. Socially, relationally, it is very good to be grateful. You'll form better relationships if you're a grateful person, somebody that's full of gratitude. Mentally, it's very good to be grateful. It is good for your brain. It is good for stress levels. It's good for cortisol levels to keep them down, being grateful. And then physically, your body can actually be affected by the, uh, the nature and how grateful you are in life. Gratitude, like I said, is an emotion. It's correlated in the brain extremely closely with general happiness. So when they study the brain and the chemicals, the positive serotonin, um, you know, all the things that get released as a, as a result of being happy, gratitude looks very similar to happiness. But in studies, it shows that gratitude even outperforms extreme and general happiness. In other words, you're your happiest and healthiest when you are grateful. It's pretty powerful. It's like, well, how can I be grateful? Yeah, I want to know. I want to be grateful all the time. But you don't want it to be like false gratefulness, like everything is fantastic, you know, when it's not. How do we, and, but interesting thing about gratefulness, it's, it's, it's an emotion, it's different than anger. Anger is something that's provoked. Gratefulness can actually be evoked. You can make movements and do things to make you more grateful. 
And what I love about the fact that gratitude, one, is outside of us in many ways, like it lands on someone other than us, is that from the dawn of time across the landscape of scripture, God has, lead, has been leading us to be thankful. You read the Psalms, you read all across scripture, God's asking us to be thankful, commanding us to give thanks. And I think sometimes that misses us and we think, well, God's just doing that as a command because he's worthy, because he's this omnipotent God that created everything. And of course he is worthy. And that is absolutely true. He is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your praise for who he is and for what he's done. But God doesn't need that. In fact, God leads us to this place of worship more because we need that in our recognition. It's, we've said this before, it's a right-sizing that everybody on planet Earth needs to understand that He is God and we are not, and what a relief it is that we don't carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. He does. So when we look at this, I love that God is, in His loving kindness, is leading us to the place of gratefulness and wants us to be grateful. And then He's He's a God that is so sovereign and so secure that he leads us to himself and his own attributes to say, you should be grateful for me. That is a crazy statement because there's no human being that could say that. You would be the most arrogant person on the planet, right? You should be grateful for me. That's what I walk in when I say to the kids when I come home from work, just walk in the house, gratefulness, bring it to me. Um, but God, because he is worthy, because he is sovereign and on high, it is a, it's a beautiful thing that he leads us to his attributes to say these are things to be grateful for. All right, so what impedes gratitude? Let's take a look. According to Summer Allen, PhD of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, she sounds pretty smart, so I'm gonna listen to her. Certain personality factors can act as barriers to gratitude, okay? Don't want these to get in the way. In particular, envy. Imagine that. Materialism, narcissism, and cynicism, a lot of isms there that get in the way of gratitude. Um, they can be thought of as thieves of thankfulness. And it's very, very interesting that a lot of those are rooted in pride, in self-serving, things that are all about us. And gratefulness and gratitude seems to be something where we're taking all of the movement of focus away from us to something else or someone else that we're grateful for. Some things in general that block us from being grateful. One, pain and suffering. John Mary says it. He says, pain throws your heart to the ground. It's hard to be grateful when your heart's on the ground. It's hard to be grateful when you're experiencing pain, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But what's crazy in the Christian life that pain and suffering actually can be a catalyst to gratefulness. It's one of the strange things about the Christian life that as we walk through pain and suffering, that as God meets us in that, that that dark canvas can often highlight the unbelievable glory, salvation, and rescue of God. Materialism is also a thing that you can read about, can make you less grateful. Now, it's nobody's fault. I mean, if you are somebody that has more money or has more stuff uh, than somebody else, um, it's just a fact you're going to be less grateful. You know, we, we, and, and we all live in the West. I mean, and, and people that come here from other places and other cultures that are less fortunate or just have less money and have less stuff, they come here and look around and they're like, 
why is everybody complaining? I mean, they're just more grateful than you. You, it's, it's, it's just like somebody from, I've used this example so many times, it's, it's ridiculous. But it's like, we live at the beach. Like we live here, we walk out. Right now we're all complaining because it's hot and we're used to east breezes and it cooling us down. Um, but people that come here from like pasty white pale and they're coming here from Oklahoma and they hit the beach, they have a different viewpoint than you have. They're, they're way more grateful. I mean, they lose their mind. They're out there in their business socks, just running into the ocean. You know, and we're like, we can't even walk outside past 10 o'clock. It's so hot. Beach people go to the beach when? Like between 6 a.m. and 9. And then you see all the tourists here from 9, like cancer, cancer hours is what I call them, from 9 to like 3. And then about 4 or 5, you'll start to see beach people with their dogs back out on the beach. Are the, are the townies gone? You know? But the people from Oklahoma, man, they're grateful. They're grateful. So when you're wealthy, look, this is, this is true. Studies show that wealth, the wealthier someone is, the harder it is for them to experience gratitude. High expectations are the norm because you got money. Good things can become standard. It's hard to buy gifts for rich people. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I know that's uncomfortable to me. It's like, well, I have money and it is hard to buy me a gift because I buy the things that I want. And it's true, you do. So that's one of those things that's not necessarily wrong or right. It's just harder for you to be grateful. Um, as um, Summer Allen put it, cynicism. The way that we look at not only situations and circumstances, there's a rise in cynicism in our culture in the last, I mean, the studies show in the last 10 years, cynicism is like skyrocketed. And it's partly because we, we know more in the advancing, ever advancing information age, we know more and people are like, getting exposed left and right. So we don't trust people. We don't trust people inside church, outside church, in politics. We don't trust anything good that happens. We're like, hmm, really? You know, when's that going to stop happening? You know, anything like anything that we get good. As soon as like, yeah, people get tax rebates and they're like, who's going to pay for it? You know, and I'm like, just put it in your pocket and say thank you. You know what I mean? But we're more cynical. It makes us less grateful. And I have to check myself because as I've gotten older, it's what happens. I mean, you, you're younger and you're like, ah, you know, I'm going to grab the world by the tail in my pocket. Sorry. And then it changes. I know. Sorry. It's 1115 crowd. I, got, I mean, we're just breaking out of the shell a little bit. Nine was a little bit subdued. So it's, it, it is part of the thing that, that happens in life. But ultimately, number four, is our, it's our sinful nature. And we're looking at things that impede gratitude. Nothing like our sinful nature. What, what happened in the Garden of Eden is a representation of our rebellion. Adam and Eve had everything. They had a relationship. They, they saw God in a way through clear eyes that we, we don't even have the opportunity to see as human beings. And what they had been given, they had been given ultimate purpose. They were in the Garden of Eden where everything was amazing. Everything was perfect. Their relationship was perfect. They were united with the creator that created them. They were living life the way that it was always meant to be lived. And then what happens? Satan enters the story. Ann Voskamp says it this way. I love the way that she puts it. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity. The sin of ingratitude. Which the enemy is saying, you shouldn't trust this guy. He hasn't given you everything that you need. And Adam and Eve are simply, painfully ungrateful for what God gave. It's the initiation 
of the sin in the garden. Isn't that the catalyst of all my sins? Our fall has always been and always will be that we aren't satisfied in God and what he gives. We hunger for something more, something other. We hunger for something more, something other. Ungratefulness, our sinful nature, because we, we that, that is what happens to us. It's never enough when we receive things. I mean, I always think about Christmas time. <laughs> like we, we get all these things, especially as a kid. It's like you get the stuff, you know, you're getting it in December. And then by March, that thing is going to be either broken or in a pile. It's some corner, you know, and there's, we look in our garage. I mean, it's, it's the stuff of tomorrow's garage sale, right? It was the gift and they were so excited about receiving, but it ends up being in the trash or at Goodwill. And please send them all to Goodwill. My wife will buy it. Um, so we've got pain and suffering, materialism, cynicism, but more importantly, our sinful nature blocks us from being grateful. But it's interesting that the prescription that we see here in Psalm 100 would be this overarching sovereignty of God. So the psalmist is wanting us to sing and be thankful and be grateful. Why? Because of God's sovereignty. So that leads us to the last question. We know that gratitude is good. It's good for us. It's good for the heart, good for the soul. We see that it's commanded by God. He leads us there. We know that it can be elusive, especially in our culture. So how does God's sovereignty lead us to be grateful? How does God's sovereignty lead us to be grateful? Look at verse three. It says, know that the Lord is God. In the ESV, like I said, it says, know that the Lord, that he is God. Very authoritative language. It is he who made us and we are his. And like I said, in the Hebrew Septuagint, there's a, another phrase that says, we are his and we are not ourselves. In other words, we, you don't own you. I mean, that is a sovereign statement. God owns you, Right? We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's even can be difficult. Like, I mean, we, we say, if you grew up in church, you're like, that's such a cute thing that he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. But your sheep, I mean, they are one of the dumbest animals on the planet. <laughs> well, I mean, I've watched, I know, somebody just went, oh, yeah, it is. It's for you feel bad. You know, they literally will do, go get water and just fall over, you know, if you, boom. I mean, they, it's, if you ever watch those videos, I can watch them for hours. Shame on me, but people scaring sheep and watching them do the frozen goat or whatever, it's, oh, it's goats that do it. That is amazing. You should definitely entertain yourself on a Sunday afternoon since there's no football by watching frozen goats. But you've got this, this idea that we're sheep, right? So know that the Lord is God. He's the one that makes us. We don't make ourselves and we are his. But I have to say this, when we talk about this idea of sovereignty, that God is in control, you know, Job would say it doesn't matter whether there's good things, whether there's bad things, blessed be his name because he's the one that created it all. Who am I to, to tell the one that tells the tide just how far to come in, how to, how to dictate the world? He knows better than me. He says, I, I came in naked and I'm going out naked because God ordains it. I mean, he understood something about God's sovereignty and he also understood something about suffering in the midst of God's sovereignty, which is so uncomfortable. But I have to ask this question. Would a God that is not sovereign be worth worshiping? Like if, a God, if, if, if the God that we, that we know in scripture, everything that we see in scripture leads us to this place of God's sovereignty, that he foreknew, 
that he preordained. That his knowledge of the, the, the past, the present, the future, that he's not bound by space and time. That nothing's out of his redemptive hands. And that he controls everything. Which is the part that makes us very, very uncomfortable. But think about it on the other side of that. Would you want to worship a God that's biting his nails going... My hands are tied. Imagine a God with his hands tied. He's really powerful and he's big and he can do all the stuff, you know? Kind of. <laughs> would, would he be worth worshiping? Would that be an, an attribute? A not sovereign, but pretty powerful God. He's created stuff. He's, he's around. He's mysterious, but we don't... He sometimes can control things, but most of the time he's sitting back hoping that we'll do the right thing, hoping that we'll, we'll walk down the right path. And it's like, he warns us, he gave us his word to tell us, don't, 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 don't go down that road. I can't help you if you go down that road. Or do we worship a sovereign creator? I'm just, gonna, that's, I'm just leaving that question out there. Would a God that is not sovereign be worth worshiping? So let's go back to the, back to the question. How does God's sovereignty lead us to be grateful? Does it? Like I said before, God's sovereignty, I think, is most difficult when you're walking through difficult seasons. I mean, it's one thing to, to watch the news and see suffering across the globe and go, okay, I don't believe in God, don't like the idea of God. There's no way that he's good if he's sovereign and he allows these things to happen. That's an understandable thing, and it's a question I'll ask God when, when I'm in heaven. But when you're walking through it yourself, you're not just seeing it, but you're walking through it. And there's people in the room right now that, that that's your story. Whether it's in your marriage. I mean, I, I talked to somebody in, in the nine. I mean, it's, you know, walking through cancer and the dread of facing death and what that looks like. God is sovereign. I mean, that's uncomfortable. And so when I ask the question, how, how does God's sovereignty lead us to be grateful? It almost seems like it, it should be the opposite. So what's the answer to the question? How does God's sovereignty lead us to be grateful? Well, the answer is it doesn't. At least not on its own. So if you listen to the rest of this psalm, that was verse three. He leads us immediately to Thanksgiving. In verse four, it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Now, the, the next word in verse five is four, like F-O-R, which is a preposition. Go back to, to the previous verse. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So then you have that preposition four. So there's an implied why there. Like in the song, I'm not putting it in scripture. I'm not trying to be extra biblical. But the, the psalmist is saying, just like John Mayer would say, hey, I got something to tell you. This is what's coming. He's saying, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. I've told you, shout, shout praise to the Lord because he is sovereign, because he is God. Because he, he is the one that created you. You didn't create yourself. He is the shepherd and you are the sheep. He's making that definitive. And then he says, you should also Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Why? Now we go to verse five. For the Lord is 
good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So it is not sovereignty on its, on its own. It is that he is sovereign in his character and he is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness for generations. We don't isolate the characters of God. We don't put them out on islands on their own and say, you should be just grateful for God's sovereignty and sit in the uncomfortable nature of God's sovereignty. But we have to understand that he is sovereign and he is good. Now that's worth worshiping. That he is sovereign over all things and he cares for you. He, he did knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than any human being on planet earth. And his capacity to love you and his love for you outshines any other human's love for you. Now you combine that with sovereignty. That begins to uproot some gratefulness. You know, I think about my dad because when you, when you think about God, there's a reason that in scripture, that Ephesians 5, you know, that we should follow the way of God just as dearly loved children, like this, this, this picture of, the, of God the Father being a father. There's a reason that that illustration's in place, even though it's imperfect, like, because many people in here didn't grow up with great dads. My dad was far, so far from perfect, but what he was was a level 10 planner. Like, my dad, he just could plan. I don't know if any of you are planners in here. My dad could plan better than you. He just could. He went to the Citadel, he was squared away, military family, his dad was a colonel, his brothers were both in the military. I mean, the dude was just absolutely squared away. It's what he loved to do was to plan. Like he just, my dad knew, he, would, he could tell you, I mean, you could look in his closet. His suits were all based on days of the week. This is Monday shirt, tie suit. Tuesday shirt, tie suit, all the way through. And he loved it. And he would switch it up every once in a while. And people were like, woohoo, he's wearing Tuesday on Monday. What's going on? Special day, you know, like to throw people off. And my dad, he would, he would call me in March and say, hey, boy, what are you doing October 8th? And I'm like, I don't know. Who knows what they're doing October 8th? It's March. You know, he was just that kind of person. Like he has life planned out, had his calendar in his pocket. And he used to always hold it up. Hey, no pressure. Like I wouldn't have things planned and I'd, I'd wonder why my life was stressful. And he's like, here you go. He goes, you know what? I'm going to get my hair cut. You know when? I'm like, yeah, I do know when. You're every third Thursday and then you're going to eat barbecue right afterwards at the place across the street. You've been doing it for the, all of your life as far as I know. I always knew where my dad was. I, ne I didn't need an iPhone to ever track my dad. I'm like, I know exact third Thursday. He's here. He's getting his hair cut from here. 1130 to 12. 12 after that, he's at Bono's. He's eating barbecue with his friends. Always. Every third Thursday very planned. Now that might sound a little bit scary to you, like that he was that squared away. But as a kid, just, I don't know what it, the, the nature of my dad, uh, it wasn't oppressive. It really wasn't. Now we did, you know, there was some, you know, weird things with his car. We touched things and, you know, don't touch the rear view mirror with a fingerprint, which we would do to drive him crazy and see him go nuts. But vacations were, I, as a kid, I just don't remember, like, I just know that there's everybody else, like, I experienced chaos taking my kids on vacation, and partly because I'm not a level 10 planner, and there's the normal, all of the normal humans in here that, like, you're taking your kids somewhere, and it's, ah, why is it, when are we going, what are we doing, my friend's going to be there, they're not going to be there, I'm going to want to be with him, and they start poking each other. 
Me and my brother would get in the car. My dad planned vacations so good. We knew they were gonna be off the charts. Like it was gonna be the most amazing thing ever. Every detail. My dad would prefer to plan the vacation over going on the vacation. Like that's how well he would plan it. Like he, and then he wanted to, he would want to talk, rehash it afterwards. Like, Hey, how, how was the vacation? Remember when we went to the thing? Yeah. Yeah. I planned that. He was so good at it that all we would do is we would get in the car and fall asleep because we had no, there was no stress. Everything was taken care of. Every detail that I could possibly think of, my dad had taken care of. Now he was obsessed with the weather because he couldn't control it, but The details of the vacation were just absolute. And when I think about that aspect of my dad, I think about the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God coming together and the implications of what that's like on planet earth to say, he is, he is the shepherd and I'm the sheep. I am his and he is the king and I'm a son of the king. That's a whole different ballgame in terms of experiencing life because the gravity of this world and the chaos of this world, the things that we see on planet earth, we're always trying to figure out, well, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here? What are these things going to happen? I wonder if this is going to happen. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. What's going to happen? If God is sovereign, he is good and I am his, then guess what? He has ordained the amount of steps I will take on planet earth and I can go to, go to sleep in the back of the car. And I'm not saying that we're, that we're passive as human beings. God has given us one of the most beautiful charges as Christians that we would be ambassadors, that we'd carry this amazing nature of who God is out to the rest of the world, that he saves, that he's a relentless pursuer, that he loves us with an enduring love, an everlasting love. But man, to be able to look at every situation and every circumstance and be able to understand that he is sovereign and he is good and he has my best interest at heart, and that the burden of my life, my identity, is not carried by me. It is carried by him. It is one of the most powerful things about who he is. I was thinking about it in, in this way, like we don't, we're not responsible for our identity. I think we live so much of our life trying to become somebody. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Our worthiness is so important to us and our identity. And we walk down, we wake up in the morning and so much, even subconsciously about who we are is about keeping up appearances, keeping up who we are, making sure that we look a certain way, act a certain way, and that we're accepted and loved by the world around us. And we lose. This is when we become ungrateful because we, we, we begin to forget that we are children of the King and that our identity is set, that we're son. There's, you're not going to outdo being a son or a daughter of the creator of the universe. But yet we try. I always equate it to getting ready and then like you've got, you, you, you're going to a party, you're gonna hang out with friends, you're going to a special dinner, going to a staff thing, doing whatever it is that you're doing and you bought an outfit for it, you look good, you know, you got your duds on and you're, you're, you feel decent. You go to the thing and it's good, you're shaking hands with people and you know, everybody's like, hey man, I like that, this is very, pretty good, I like the shoes, it's pretty decent. And then all of a sudden you spill something on yourself like you're in the bathroom and you're just like, you turn the water on and it goes just too hard. And it's like, <laughs> looks like you peed yourself. And then it just ruins everything. Like instantaneously, all, the, all, that, all that work is just a spill. And then nothing else matters at that. The party stinks at that point. You're constantly just you know, trying to figure out a way, napkin while you're eating. And all you can think about because you're humiliated is 
that you look like a fool. And you're the guy. I'm, I am the guy that's always going to dribble some. It's like, I look good, got a brand new shirt, and there's going to be a dribble right here. Um, that's an that's a illustration for life. It doesn't matter what we do to make ourselves and create ourselves, our identity. We will work hard. It is fragile at best. And it is just on the heels of a spill. We need something that's more solid, something that's more foundational. We need a good and sovereign God that has said, you are mine, you are mine. And what a relief it is to take the burden of our identity off our shoulders. You know, it continues in verse five and talks about this unending love, that his love knows no ends. That means there's no boundaries to his love. No boundaries, this unconditional love. It's this let your hair down kind of love. Like in other words, unconditional love, it's what all of us are looking for. You were created for unconditional love, but it is not, you can't find it on planet earth. Now in marriage, it's what we're supposed to work towards, but it's not. There's love with condition, even in marriage. We, tr- we want, it, want it to be unconditional. We're supposed to, as, as men in a marriage, it is loves your, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's supposed to be unconditional. I'm supposed to look at my wife and say, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what you look like, no matter how this ends, if you get depressed, even if you reject me, walk away from me, I am not going to stop loving you. That's how Christ commands me. But in the day in, day out, it's a work in progress but not for God. You know, Abner Ramirez of Johnny Swim, he has a lyric in one of his songs that says, hey, the only thing that's getting me out of this marriage is when I'm in a body bag, which is a beautiful notion. You know, that's a death to us part kind of thing, but the reality is it's not true or there wouldn't be a 65% divorce rate. But for God, it, it did end in a body bag because he was willing to give everything up for you. He went all the way into the grave to represent to you unconditional love, to pay for your sin that you might be reunited with a heavenly father, a sovereign and good creator that created you. His redemptive plan went all the way to the body bag. This unconditional, beautiful pursuit for you and for me. And lastly, we see in verse five that he is faithful, that his track record shows that he can bring beauty from ashes that this isn't the end of the story. And maybe you're really struggling today with God's sovereignty in your life and what's going on. And you're wondering how in the world can I be grateful in the middle of this pain, in the middle of this suffering. And maybe today isn't that day. But I can tell you what God's faithfulness will tell you is that this is not the end of the story when we see the story of the cross of Jesus Christ, we sang it this morning when we sang All Hail King Jesus. It says this, there was a moment when the lights went out. Can you imagine being there that day? Like standing at the cross, like maybe spending all your time and three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry being close to him. Think of the apostle John, not knowing or understanding why the one that was supposed to be the king in Jerusalem and the king of Israel the rescuer was dying on a cross. This is when death had claimed its victory. The king of love had given up his life, the darkest day in history. It really was no hope. So I don't know what situation you're in or what circumstance you're in. And you may be in that place of going, there is no hope in this. 
There is no hope in this loneliness. There is no hope in this cancer. There is no hope in this marriage. There is no hope in this relationship. This has always been this way and always will be this way. This, there's no darker day than the dark day of Calvary. It goes on and says, they're on the cross they made for sinners. For every curse, his blood atoned. Jesus had a purpose as he went there and it was for you. One final breath and it was finished. But not the end we could have known. And I love it. It's like a cliffhanger in that verse, that verse right there. Because it's not over. It's not over. Jesus would breathe his last the sky would go dark, the veil would be torn from top to bottom, which would be the beginning of saying something's changed. Where everybody, nobody had access to the presence of God. Now all of a sudden the, the, this curtain's 50 feet tall, four feet wide, four inches thick, torn from top to bottom. Holy of holies exposed. The beginning of us being able to boldly approach the throne of grace. Friday afternoon, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and then Sunday before dawn, he was already out of the grave. The story not over and he is faithful if you're wondering why you can be grateful in the moment that you're in is that no matter where you are the worst thing that could possibly happen which is death he's overcome it and he's defeated it praise be to Jesus the giver of life the giver of life he is as John Mayer is looking for, and as he says in his song, Jesus is the heart of life.